So this is a time for uh, discussion or um, any time, any things that need clarifying from what uh, I brought up in these uh, reflections. So please uh, don't be shy. We have a, a wandering microphone that we'd like to ask people to use so that in, everyone can hear the, uh, the questions and that also so things can be uh, recorded. So if there's anything that people would like to ask, this front row there. Thank you for your talk today, Ajahn. I wrote the question down yesterday. Um, <laughs> That's clever. <laughs> I'm impressed. Thinking that I might forget, but um, here goes. Um, four years ago, my father died following a few years of suffering. And I struggled at this time with this loss. At that time, a good friend gave me a book by Ajahn Samedo. This started me on the path of meditation, reading more, and eventually coming here attending some meditation workshops and some of the Sunday talks. There are still times when I struggle and suffer, and this tends to be when there are too many difficult things seemingly to cope with. Um, just at this time, there's a lot of pressure at work, stress at work, and um, our children are reaching an age where they finish their studies and we're trying to guide them into the world of work. I've just recently been diagnosed with a benign tumour near my brain that may need to be operated on and this is causing some concern as well. So my question is when there seems too many things to cope with can you provide some guidance on how to approach this dilemma? Good question. It's um, an array of different concerns. But uh, this is one of the areas where wise reflection uh, is extremely helpful. Uh, and also the, the um, that area of, of the development of mindfulness called uh, chitanupasana, or the mindfulness of moods and, and uh, mental states. So the, the way I handle these kind of things is to, to reflect. This is the, you know, oh no, this is all too much. I can't deal with all of this feeling. That's what this is. Because, again, we buy into the content. It's like, oh, there's this, and there's this, and there's this, and there's this, and it's all demanding my attention, and it all needs to be decided about. And so we've, we've missed the fact that that's a, a wave of feeling or a mood that's arisen in the mind, and we've bought into the content. So this, uh, the, the kind of process of wise reflection can help us to draw the attention out of the content and look at the process. Say, well, this is, at this moment, there is this, oh my goodness, what am I going to do about this feeling? That's what this is. It doesn't mean that suddenly all your taxes are paid and your kids have got jobs and your, your brain tumor has uh, <laughs> disappeared. But what it means is that there's a, there's a, a spaciousness in the attitude and that the, the, uh, the more that we can give some room around our, our opinions, our feelings, our... our uh, our reactions, then the more our own nat our natural wisdom has got room to operate, has got room to, to maneuver. So I do this all of the time. This that that kind of uh, of uh, say recog active recognizing of of um, what the, the the present feeling is. Just like yesterday, yesterday afternoon, I was due to have a what had the potential of being a very very difficult meeting. Someone was coming to visit who had a a very um, a strong grievance against uh, the monastery and some uh, um, particular issues that they, they've been involved in. 
And so, uh, knowing this meeting is on my schedule, then a sense of, oh, um, what am I going to do? And what, if they bring up this, or they bring up that, and you know, how should I prepare myself? Going into the content, but then as the, the, the day was taking shape, every so often I'd say, oh, this is the, um, uh, oh dear, what's that meeting at four o'clock going to be like? Feeling. <laughs> That's, and then, in the, and it's not a suppression. You're not. It's not a, a an abdication from responsibility. It's just saying, in this moment, this is the oh dear, I've got that meeting at four o'clock. How's that going to be? Feeling. That's what this is. And then there's a, 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 a uh, the, the felt sense of it is then things coming into a, a quality of balance. Because in a sense, that's what right view is. In this moment, this is the feeling that has arisen. It's it's here now. And then. You, you'll, you'll have probably, you might have noticed or you might not have noticed that when you are brushing your teeth or you know, when you are tying your shoelaces, most of the issues about what to do with your children's careers are not there. It's a problem when we think of it. When we don't think about it, it's not a problem. The, the bills are still not paid, <laughs> the jobs are still not thing, but the problematicness is not there. So if you notice that kind of thing, then you realize the problematic quality of these patterns of nature that I call my kids' careers, or my illness, or my responsibilities. The problematic quality is what the mind adds to it. In and of itself, it is just the way the world is. It doesn't mean, therefore, I'm going to go numb and switch off. It, it's saying, oh, it, if, if you call it a problem, it's not a problem. It, it is a problem. If you don't call it a problem, it's not a problem. And there, there was a very um, uh, interesting comment exactly about that, that uh, the, the monk who's now the abbot of the main monastery, Ajahn Chah's senior uh, student, Ajahn Liam, who now is the abbot of Wat Bapong, he was visiting our monastery in the States when I was living there, and, and somebody asked him the question, uh, during your practice, what, was, what did you find was the most difficult things, or what were the, the worst obstacles that you encountered? And he he thought about it for a moment and said well there was a when i was a young a younger monk when i was when i was younger i had a lot of fear and so that that was an obstacle and then he thought well and you could hear as the word obstacle came out of his mouth upasak is the thai word you could hear his mind going e, not really <laughs> yeah he was uh, he received the question he was sort of answering the question in its own terms but then he got halfway through and said, no, because, and he changed his tack and said, to call it an obstacle makes it some, seem something that's negative or harmful. Or, but actually, the challenge of working with those difficulties is what brings forth great wisdom and also helps you to grow as a person. That though what we call difficulties or obstacles, problems, they are what cause us to raise our game. That you improve your skill. If you're if you're drawn against, um, you know, if you're playing football and you're drawn against Brighton and Hove Albion, then you think, well, that would be an easy uh, an easy game. If you're drawn against Manchester City, or yeah, or um, you know, the, or Real Madrid, you know, think, oh well, <laughs> there goes the cup this year, you know. So, but your game is raised. Okay, we've got to get in the get in the arena with Real Madrid. Okay, buckle up, <laughs> and you 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 raise your game because of the the occasion, and so that 
that uh, with the kind of uh, issues you're, you're describing and the use of wise reflection is, is in, as it can be incredibly helpful uh, that you bring attention to the habitual judgments that I call this bad or I call it a problem I call it my responsibility and then to ask yourself well, why do I why do I say that why do I call it that you know, is that the whole story is there a different way of looking at it so that that all comes under the category of of uh, yoni so manasikara wise consideration noticing what the mind does so if you if you read many of uh, lumpur cha's teachings and his his dhamma talks is over and over again he's describing that kind of process uh, almost sort of dialoguing with himself you know they say well so i considered why did i do that or i considered why do i call the 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 the, the golden colored mangoes good and the green mangoes bad like well, you know, you can't get a gold mango without having a green one first. So, <laughs> but the, my mind says these are good and these are not good. <laughs> Isn't that strange? And so that uh, use of of reflective thought to uh, to notice the patterns that our mind creates and the judgments of like and dislike, approval, disapproval, and then it's it's quite extraordinary how we can change our world through the uh, the the way we hold it. Um, I'm just curious, thank you for the talk, certainly give me lots of food for thought and I'm sort of reflecting on arriving at decisions where a decision needs to be made and what you describe sounds like you're you know, finding peace with having a multiplicity of outcomes almost mm -hmm. but inevitably you know, with the, the pictures on the wall or the, the colour you need perhaps eventually either you keep moving around or you decide on a a final mm -hmm. verdict. So I suppose I'm just pondering how one sits then, finds peace with all of the versions of reality that might have been that, that aren't. And sort of related mm -hmm. to that, um, how one sort of, I don't know if squares is the right word, but how one, how one sits comfortably with what sounds like quite an intellectual process that you described in some ways. I mean, Versus something that's more like a, a feeling, like an instinct, mm -hmm. which doesn't can't be sort of rationalised. I'd say they work. They work together. It's a very good question. Um, it, it is a uh, yeah, the, the decision making. I was having a conversation with someone in in the break uh, about about this, uh, and a lot of it depends on that. The last thing I was talking about, the letting go of self view around opinions, and so. Uh, oftentimes when you are you're discussing things with others and as i said i'm on literally on 15 or more committees so i, d I do a lot of dialoguing and <laughs> and, and meeting uh, uh, opposing opinions um but a lot of it's to do with that letting go of of self view if it's if someone has an opinion that's different from mine if i take that as a personal attack then and then I feel defensive, and then they're against me, and it's all—it's very, very difficult to, to come to any kind of resolution. If I, if there's a letting go of of that self-investment and just say, "Well, I kind of like purple," <laughs> I thought I thought, "Great, that's a perfect a perfect cover," and someone else you realize, well, it, they're responsible for producing the book, and purple actually makes them physically ill. <laughs> they they can't look at that without being nauseated. Uh, well, I should take that into account, and then, okay, I can live with you know, yellow and grey and beige, you know? and um, and so that that 
uh, is a respectfulness that you find that just because your preference is one particular way um, and the other, you can respect that somebody else's preference is different. So that then the decisions that come out are um, often a surprise. Usually it's a surprise. You don't know where it's going to go or you don't know what the, 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 the working solution is, is going to be. And uh, the, um, that readiness to be surprised is, is important. <laughs> if you've got a fixed idea of how you want it to be, you are toast, as they say in California. So, yeah, you are, you are, it's, 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 you're dead. You know, it's absolutely, you're guaranteed suffering. Because it, even if you get it to go that way, then you've got to hold it that way. While the forces of the world that keep trying to tweak it and change it and move it and do something with it, it's misery. I speak from experience. <laughs> so that um, being ready to be surprised by the solutions that that come forth, and then to be able to say, "Well, I didn't think it would go that way, but yeah, why not? Okay, good. That's good too." And uh, that readiness to to be surprised and like, like for, for for the time i was living in the states i was a co-abbot with another monk Ajahn pasna and uh, we were very compatible in terms of our views about dhamma practice but very different personalities and often there would some issue would come up about the community life or the routine or about a building project and my you know the first thought in my mind was oh well we should build it there or we should paint it you know purple or Oh, we should do it this way. Oh, we should change the routine like this. And he would come up with something completely different. You know, our first thought was it was utterly divergent. And so, uh, we, but we were co-abbots, so we, we made all decisions collectively. And, and uh, sort of working things out between the two of us. So I got really used to that process of, of, um, of having another point of view, which was not mine. And then when he would explain what, what his thinking was, I go, that's really good. <laughs> oh, I didn't think of that. And uh, so over and over again, seeing that the idea, the first thought that came into my mind of what seemed to be an obvious solution was, uh, was by no means the only way forward or, 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 or the best result. And then frequently he would say the same. They'd say, oh, yeah, I never thought of that. And so that sense of, of being ready to be surprised, come up with things that that uh, you'd never thought of. Also, that sense of, well, I never thought of that. I'm not sure where it's going to go, but let's just try it and see. And again, if you don't have that self-investment, the kind of egoic investment in, it's got to succeed because it's my project, it's got my name on it, then if, if that element is absent, then you're much more happy to say, okay, well, let's let it run and see what happens. Yeah. And uh, And so then you're watching, you're paying attention, and then uh, oftentimes like, you, you are ple I find myself pleasantly surprised, like, oh, that did work, oh, great. <laughs> or if it goes pear-shaped, you realize, right, <laughs> okay, next time don't do it that way, or, or okay, you know, he's not a very good judge of, yeah, he's, uh, he's very, good in some, you know, very good in the office, but not very good in the building site, okay, so don't don't put that person in charge of the carpentry yeah. so you you, are, you learn from your mistakes but you're not identified with the mistakes or making making dukkha out of it so it's decision making without egoic involvement 
So it's like, and this is a so ancient spiritual question of how to act, but would not be identified with the act. How to 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 make changes in the world, how to to take initiative, do things, but without um, uh, you know, creating the the uh, difficulty or stress or conflict within yourself or between yourself and others. So the other question that, or the point that you made about um, the outcomes that didn't happen don't make anything out of it. I just uh, you know, if you think if you if you have the idea I want it to be perfect, you'll suffer. If you if because you create the idea there is a perfect solution and I haven't got it yet. So one of the expressions that Ajahn Chah used to use all the time was "podi," which is good enough. Uh, so when people would say, how are you? He wouldn't say, oh, sabaydi. Uh, he wouldn't say, I'm very well. He'd say, dai, which means good enough to get by. Or portondai, it's endure, meaning it's endurable. <laughs> uh, and so it might seem like you're, you're being a bit sort of weak-willed or you're settling for, for less than the best. But if you want thing, if you create the idea there's a perfect solution, then you never get it. It's it's always evading you, but if instead you go for a a good enough solution, then life is very is very comfortable. And there's a really a good story. This wonderful fellow called um, Trevor Leggett, who was a uh, uh, a British um, broadcaster. He lived in Japan for a long time. He worked for the BBC World Service, I think, uh, in Japan for many many years. And he was a, a marvelous teacher. He had a wealth of, of great stories. And he was a, one of the very first Westerners to be deeply involved in judo practice. And he was the first I think, Westerner to ever reach the ninth Dan black belt in judo. And he would go along to the Buddhist Society summer school and give talks there. And I remember being in on a couple of his talks. And he described when he was training in judo, he had got to a certain level, and, uh, and uh, he, but he felt he was he's stuck, and he wanted to improve. And with the teacher that he had, he was, he felt he was kind of gone as far as he could go. So he was looking for another teacher, and he was at this competition, and there was this other, um, this other fellow there, uh, and he seemed to have no particular. He didn't have a very polished style. He seemed a bit sloppy and kind of. Uh, uh, all over the place, but he kept winning. <laughs> and that where most of the other people practicing judo, they had a particular method or a theme or a style that they they did. That's their thing, and they they uh, and they would that was what they embodied. And they were known for that particular practice or that that hold or that that trick they would always be good at. And this this fellow, he seemed a bit kind of sloppy and unfocused, but he kept winning. And so Trevor got interested. In that <laughs> that uh, I want to I want to be able to study with him because what he realizes is that you learn a trick and you get very good at that trick, but then everyone knows your trick after a while, <laughs> and you can't get away with it. They know how to counteract your trick. And this fellow didn't seem to have a trick. He didn't have a like a thing that was his expertise. <coughs> and so he, um, uh, Trevor went to to study with him uh, or asked to study with him. He said, "No, I don't take students." Yeah usual <laughs> and then uh, eventually he got he got him to agree and he said okay well before we go into the dojo to, to uh, you have to go to the zen monastery for three months and practice meditation no i don't i'm not i'm not a buddhist i don't want to meditate i want to do judo so, yeah. 
get thee to the zendo and that was his introduction to buddhism was was from that that teacher and it was because he he had the method of no method it was like what he was doing was just responding to whoever came into the arena with him but anyway one of the stories then that that uh, trevor told about being being in the the, the zen monastery was that uh, he was on raking, it was autumn, and he was on leaf raking duty. It was one of these these old Zen temples with these gardens about 500 years old, 600 years old. And so moss gardens were like 18 different kinds of moss growing over the rocks and kind of exquisitely crafted over literally centuries and centuries. So he's given the task of, of raking the leaves and so he's being excruciatingly mindful and spends about three hours raking all these the leaves under the maple trees in the, in the garden, careful not to, to harm any of the moss and looking after everything perfectly. And so at the end of about three hours, then uh, he, he's looking and he sees, very nice, everything absolutely spotless. And you know, every leaf is sort of gathered up and put into their little piles. And, and he's sort of, sort of standing there with his rake. And of course, at this, point, this is the point that the abbot walks along. And, uh, and so, He's sort of getting ready for the abbot to sort of to discern the sort of the glow of mindful attention and perfection around the, the his raking job, and uh, and so the uh, the abbot comes up and stands there and sort of looks around, and he says, "Not quite perfect," <laughs> and he's looking for this leaf that he's missed. And, he can't, and he's like, what did I miss? What's wrong? And then, and then the abbot kind of reached over to this little sapling and kind of gave it a shake. And then five leaves just sort of fell off, landed, these beautiful crimson-colored leaves landed on the green mosses. 80% is perfect. 100% is bad taste. So, and so, and that, that, so he said that, that became a principle, 80% is perfect. Now, if you're a brain surgeon, you might think, well, hang on a minute, Ajahn. You know, I'm a brain surgeon, 80% is not perfect. So, so, you know, all these things are relative. But that um, there's a lot of wisdom in that. You know, deep or deep, good enough good. It's, it's, uh, because when we aim for things being 100%, it, you can never get there. It's like the, trying to reach the horizon. It's, it's, an impossible, it's an impossible goal. And so you create this tension in your heart. Whereas the uh, 80% is perfect. It's like, yeah, you're, you're, you're doing a good job. You're making it as thorough as possible. And then, okay, it's enough. You're, 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 you're not trying to, to, uh, you know, I, to, uh, to iron the sea. That was an analogy that Ajahn Sajito would use, ironing the sea. You know, <laughs> diligently standing out there on the beach, kind of ironing the sea, trying to make the waves flat. Yeah. Or like in the walrus and the carpenter, you know, if seven maids with seven mops should sweep for half a year, do you think that they could sweep this beach of sand quite clear? I, do I doubt it, said the carpenter, and shed a bitter tear. <laughs> like, you can't do it, so why bother trying? Is that you're, tr you're asking too much, and it's not necessary. So, with respect to all the things that haven't happened, you know, don't make anything of it. There, there could be another world where everything would have been much better, but there isn't. It's not here. <laughs> so no need to make any anything out of that. We could spend a lot of energy over all that might have been. And uh, it's, it, it's a waste of good energy, I would say, in my opinion. <laughs> so.
So, any other? Yes, Wendy. In the front here. Hi, Ajahn. I've, it's quite a simple question, really. Um, would you call it compromise? Um, I've been married, what, 33 years now, and I think maybe my husband and I have lost, perhaps because we've tried to agree on things, but I just wondered if, it, if that's another word for compromise, what you've just been explaining. Um, yes, it's a, a wise kind of compromise, to promise together, compromise. To, to promise together, so it, yeah, it's a, uh, it's finding where you are unified, and so one of the things when you you learn to recognize the that self view that g gathers around an opinion, and you let go of that, then you realize well, he, uh, he sees green, I see blue. Okay, <laughs> but uh, we're in this together, and so uh, that sense of um, uh, what the other person sees or what they like is very different from what I like. But why, why does that have to be something that divides us? If I'm if I'm identify with my opinion that says no, it's 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 blue and it's good, and then the other person says no, it's green and it's bad, then if if we're attached to that, then we might have all sorts of evidence. I can prove it's blue. Look, I can prove it. Look. Then you just get further and further. You create more and more of a sense of division. And you know, separation, and they say no, it's green, and I can prove it. And so you get two sets of proof clashing with each other. But when you are able to uh, say, well, that's your perception, that's your opinion, but I I refuse to reject you or or, or um, alienate myself from you on account of that, then you find a, a great sense of uh, of say, unity despite the differences of opinion. Like uh, when again back uh, when I was in the States, there was this young woman, uh, Julia Butterfly, and she was uh, uh, in this um, program, this uh, collection of people who were trying to protect a, a redwood forest in our area. That was um, it, the company. It was a small local lumber company that had been operating for about a hundred years or so, Pacific Lumber, and they'd been bought out by a big corporation in Texas, Maxim Corporation, and Maxim had decided to cash in their assets. <laughs> which meant leveling the forest. And so this particular group were protesting the, 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 this old-growth forest of, of redwood trees, these trees that are 1,000, 2,000 years old, that were just going to be cut down. And so Julia uh, was part of this group, and she, uh, and she climbed up into this tree, and she stayed in this tree for two years without coming down. So you can imagine this, just the practicalities of living up in a tree for two years. And... And so we went to go and visit her, Ajahn Pasna and myself, with a whole group of people from Abhayagiri. And it was the tree was conveniently on a on a steep slope, so you could actually get on up, up on the slope and be on an eye level. <laughs> you had to talk over a cell phone because it was too uh, it was too um, far a distance to shout. But uh, uh, it was great. We kind of went up and did some parita chanting, and uh, she was she had no particular. She wasn't a, like a central member of that group before she. Um, she went up into the tree. She just sort of said, "We need someone to do a tree sit," and you know, and she stuck out. Okay, I'll do it. Had no idea she was going to be going out there for two years. <laughs> but anyway, she was very remarkable. Not just because she would like, stand on top of the tree and <laughs> without holding on at two hundred feet up, uh, and uh, that she was just so sort of patient and enduring, being up there in the winter storms and, and you know, lashing rain and wind and such. 
Um, but the, the really powerful thing was that she refused to hate the, corp the corporation and the, the head of the, comp the company, um, Hurwitz was his name. She refused to condemn him or hate him. And they were the ones who were threatening the whole forest. And it got to the point where the people in the, 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 the eco-protection group, Earth First, they got really angry with her because she, re <laughs> she was not condoning hatred for the, the, uh, the, the corporation. But uh, she, uh, she refused to make him the, or the company into the enemy. And, uh, and that became the most powerful uh, element, was that she, she refused to condemn, she refused to hate, she refused to see them as other, or as wrong, or as bad, but she was not going to come down from the tree <laughs> until they agreed to protect it, uh, which they did. And uh, there's a 200-acre area around that, this tree. And so uh, it was a, a very uh, powerful message. And there's a wonderful photograph of, of her meeting Mr. Hurwitz after they made the agreement and she came down. And he's a sort of guy looking a little bit uptight <laughs> with, his, with his suit and tie on. And she's just reaching forward in a very sort of California way, kind of touching him on the heart. And she's got this big smile. <laughs> and he's got this sort of, oh, I'm not quite sure what this is about, but this is kind of nice. <laughs> Like, this is not really my territory, but okay. Because <laughs> suddenly he'd become the good guy. And because the, they'd agreed to, to protect the tree. And that, that uh, even though she was completely opposed to what they were doing, she was not going to come down from that tree until they agreed. She was prepared to stay out there for the rest of her life. That it was like, I love you and I oppose your actions completely. I, I love you. I will. I do not hate you. I refuse to hate you. And no, I'm not coming down. <laughs> and that that was so powerful because it was really represented that she what she was doing was was uh, fundamentally attuned to human res you know, respecting life, the life of the trees, the life of the other people, the life of the company as well. And she refused to hate. And so, in terms of compromise, if it's a compromise that's sort of like well, all right. <laughs> You know, <laughs> then there's a different tone to it than, um, than I, I refuse to see you as other. I refuse to to um, to alienate myself from you. And even and but yeah, uh, you know, to me that color looks beautiful, and to to you that color looks awful. Okay, let's let's, let's find a way around. But you 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 find that you can come up with solutions. I mean, I, being at Amravati, you know, there's 50, 60 people that live here. It's a daily task, <laughs> finding ways of, of, um, of compromise and, and a sense of, uh, of finding a sense of accord when people see things and feel things very differently. They're the people who have newly arrived, the people who have been here for decades, the people, the women in the community, the men in the community, the lay people, the monastics, the kitchen people, the library people, the office people, the retreat center people. Yeah. And you, the more that you are able to let go of self-concern, and then it's mysterious because you can, you, in a way, that you let go of self-view, but you can have the, the opinions can be even more intense. <laughs> Like that is so awful, uh, but you you find yourself quite at ease with it, and you're much you're able to express your opposition, like say, because you're not making the other into an antagonist or an enemy, but you're working together, 
even though you say, that is really awful. <laughs> like, you can't really mean that. And, uh, and yet, because there's that sense of empathy that you're, you're with the other, then they say, well, it might surprise you, but yes, I do. <laughs> and you go, oh, wow, look at that. And there's this marvelous chemistry that then you, you find solutions that surprise, surprise you that come from that because the basis is that your, your sense of, of collaboration and, and a unity of, of being, a unity of qualities. And then you, you find a way forward that, that you, know, you could never calculate. And so it's, it's like, is, is it a calculation or is it a feeling? It's essentially, it's a feeling. It's like on a football field, where does the, the, the footballer choose to place their feet to get the ball in the right place? It's not intellectual. It's just, you know, the, the foot's gone to the place before they've even thought about it. Or in a musician, where should the fingers go and when should they move to get the note right? <laughs> it's, there's a technicality to it. But the exact moment and the weight of the note and this duration is completely to do with feeling and intuition. You can't calculate it. But with the greater quality of attunement, then it, it, those things look after themselves. So there was another question. And my first question is, Lord Buddha said that uh, there is a deed, but there is no doer. There is a movement, there is no mover. I've searched into myself and I could not find an Atma. Now, is that, my first question is, is that a perception or absolute reality? <laughs> because you've been talking about perception, yeah. you've been talking about perception. I, I'm, my argument is that too could be also a perception. Mm -hmm. Now, second argument is, uh, a point I'm making, my opinion, now assuming that the fact that there is no Atma, yeah, and well, that, that's debatable. Yeah, there is no Atma. And well, that's, wait, that, that's debatable because you can find no place in the suttas where the Buddha says there is no self. No, in, in his, his, when he asked, uh, asked about it, I think he did say no, he to, didn't. To, to the disciples when, they, when that Hindu person came and said, is there a God? And he remained quiet. They again he asked him, is there a God? He came, and then after that, Anand asked him, why did you not... Tell them that you have not yet encountered or thought in terms of God. He said, Ananda, if I did tell them there is a God, I'd be lying to myself. If I said that uh, there is uh, uh, no God, they would be, whole of the Hindu community will go against me. That is why I uh, did not make any answer. I remained silent. I remained silent. Now, he talked about Anatta. Well, excuse me, but that, the, the, the way I remember that encounter is a bit different. But the point <laughs> is, in, in, in Trivada Buddhism, uh -huh. in Trivada Buddhism, they, they talk more, mainly that there is no God. Well, so, yeah. uh, it's... But, I'm, I'm, but Tibetan Buddhism says that there is God. Then also there is, you know, uh, it's quite clear that uh, in case of Brahma, who told, told Buddha to speak to people uh, 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 regarding his enlightenment, because even if the few people with small dust in their eyes can understand yes, it, yes. it is better uh, than do not to speak at all. This was mm -hmm. Brahma. Now the point by, I'm trying to make is, is that, is therefore Nirvana also a conception? Is there not, nothing that is absolute? 
Well, I, I can respond to your, your questions. Uh, so firstly, uh, I would say there is no place in the Pali Canon where, you, where the Buddha says, there is no self. The encounter that you're describing is between the Buddha and a wanderer called Vachagota. And he doesn't ask him about God, he asks him about Atta. He says, is there a self? The Buddha remains silent. And he says, is there no self? The Buddha remains silent. And then after Vachagota goes away, then Ananda asks the Buddha, uh, why, didn't you, uh, yes. why didn't you respond? And he said, um, well, if I'd said, uh, there, is, uh, there, there is a self, would that be in accordance with my many teachings that all Dhammas are not self? So it might seem a semantic nicety, but the, the Buddha said many, many times, all things are not self, but he never says there is no self. So, and there's a big difference. <laughs> so I would say, in my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> but so then, then the other thing, then he said, well, if, and if I had said to Vachagota, there is no self, then, uh, then Vachagota would have felt, well, I, uh, I had a self and I came here, and now the master tells me I, have, I haven't got one. And so he would have gone away more confused than when he arrived. And so that's the encounter between uh, that you're describing, I suspect. So it wasn't about God, and it wasn't about the, the Hindu community uh, in that in any in specific specific way. Certainly, uh, the word nibbana is a concept; it's a word. Um, the <coughs> it's a word. It's a, nibbana is a word. Nibbana, the word is not nibbana. Right? The the word is not the quality. The word is merely uh, something that refers to a quality. So the and the, the, one of the, the miraculous things about the Buddha's teaching or uh, is that it uses conventions to help the mind to awaken to that which is beyond convention. It uses conditions, conditioned things like words, to help the mind to awaken to the unconditioned. And so the experience of of knowing the unconditioned is what we call nibbana. So that is what the, the Buddha called the. This is the the, the most uh, important kind of miracle. So there's two kinds of miracle: the miracle of psychic power, like reading people's minds or looking into past lives or flying through the air. So the miracle of psychic power is one kind of miracle. The other kind of miracle is the miracle of instruction. So that just through hearing words, it can uh, the hearing of words can bring about a change in the heart, whereby that heart is totally liberated. And so I said, and of these two kinds of miracle, the miracle of instruction is the superior. <laughs> so the, that's a, the remarkable thing. It's like uh, creating dreams to wake up the dreamer. That you are, uh, that uh, we can, we, we have words, we have structures like Sunday afternoon talks, uh, uh, but yet, even though these are con con conditioned forms, they can cause the mind to awaken to its fundamental nature, the unconditioned. That's a, that's a miracle, I would say. And uh, But every uh, every thought, every word, is just a condition. So the word Nibbana is just a word. It's also significant that the Buddha used the term noble truths, like the, the four noble truths. They're four noble truths, they're not absolute truths. Because when they are uh, when they are contemplated and when they are brought into being, they they're, they're conventional truths. They're, they're, they're just ordinary, everyday descriptions. But when they are enacted, then they lead to a, a realization of the ultimate, uh, ultimate truth. So that the words are not the ultimate truth, but the words 
and when they interact with the human heart can cause a quality of awakening which is beyond words, which is beyond concepts. And like, as I said, yena yena himanyanti tatatangahoti anyatati. Whatever you conceive it to be, the reality is other than that. So Nibbana is a word. <laughs> the referent, the thing it refers to, is not a word. It's not a concept. So what is absolute? <laughs> Unnameable. It's, it's, that's why the, 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 the Buddha used this 99% uh, of his teaching to talk about the path to, to realizing the absolute. I mean, you can use the word dhamma, dharma in Sanskrit, dhamma in Pali. That is uh, what we uh, say the simplest term that we can use for uh, that ultimate reality. And so dharma, it comes from the, the root dhr, which means to uphold or to, to support, to integrate. Uh, that so dhamma means that which upholds that which that's sort of the integrating principle of the the universe. We think of dhamma as the the Buddha's words or the you know the words of a, a teaching, but at its essential level, it's the fundamental nature of reality, of uh, uh, conditioned and unconditioned. These are all aspects of of dhamma. So you know, you can say, uh, and uh, again, Lumpur Sumedha would often make that this kind of comparison. He'd say. The, the Buddhist in Buddhist terminology, uh, and Ajahn Buddhadasa made the same kind of comparison. You can you can equate Dhamma with God, but within Buddhist philosophy, you can't. Whereas in say Judeo-Christian or, or Hindu uh, philosophy, that God is is easily personalized. It's it's sort of it's something other. It's it's a it's something that's uh, so transcendent and separate. In in Buddhist philosophy, you you can't turn Dhamma into a being or something that's, that's separate or elsewhere. It's the very fabric of everything that is. Every aspect of your mind and body and the, the, the material, mental, spiritual universe is all Dhamma. So you can't externalize. Like you can't say, you can't meaningfully say, you know, I'm, I am separate from the Dhamma. It's, it's a meaningless statement in Buddhist language. Okay, we've gone past four o'clock, so... That's uh, enough for today. You can, if you have other questions, you can refer back to my comment. If you, if you, uh, if you didn't already know the answer, you couldn't ask the question. <laughs> so if you still have questions that are pending, let's go back to where those questions came from and you'll find the answer.